This morning we continue our sermon series on turning points, looking at the darkest moment really in Israel's history, the Babylonian exile, carted off to another land, their temple destroyed. And the darkness of that moment is matched in the darkness of this psalm. Listen to these words, Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs and our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. I'm not sure that's really true. We hear your word with gladness. We rejoice words of love and life and freedom. It's really hard to believe that this beloved collection of poetry and prayer and song that we call psalms would, would have something like this in it. It's so heavy. I mean, we all know despair. There's music in our lives, the, the blues and African-American spirituals that lean into despair. And it's there in the Psalms. People are sometimes surprised to learn that the book of Psalms has more songs of lament than joy and praise. But it's the vindictiveness of this one that really gets us. Happy or blessed are those who will take the enemy's babies and dash their head against a rock. Whew. Some worship resources do not include Psalm 137. They omit it. And those who do clip off the last verses. And who can blame them? On September 12, 2001, the day after 9-11, a group of clergy met at Princeton Theological Seminary about an hour south of Manhattan. They gathered with students and faculty for scripture and prayer. And one of the female clergy dared to read Psalm 137 in its entirety. And it was met with silence, stunned silence. I mentioned last week that the biblical scholar Marcus Borg says that there are two stories in particular in that first testament that are so crucial, they don't just tell you about some moment in Israel's history, they describe the human condition. The Exodus, which we looked at last week, about bondage, and this one, the exile, which is all about despair. If the exodus is the highest moment in Israel's history, and it is, the exile is the lowest. And yet, I think there can be a turning point.
but it needs some explanation. First, the backstory. You could go to church your whole life and hear this little phrase, you know, the exile, the Babylonian exile, and not quite have perspective. 600 years before the time of Jesus, Israel was attacked by the Babylonians, neighboring nation. It happened in two stages, though. In the first stage, they carted off the elite within Israel's society. Musicians, for instance, like the one who would have written this. And he describes, in this case, how the Babylonians tormented them and teased them and said, sing us some of your songs, and they couldn't. They simply hung up their harps and cried. Which reminds me of that story of the makeshift orchestra of Jews in the camps and the Nazis saying, we're going to have you play for us. They decided among themselves, if we have to play to live, we will only play dirges, sad music. Ten years after that first attack, the Babylonians returned and they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed Solomon's temple, one of the most gorgeous buildings in the history of the world, laid it to ruins. This psalm is written by someone who has returned to find all of that destruction. If you want to tap into that, you sort of have to imagine a couple of things. You have to imagine yourself sifting through the rubble of 9-11, and you have to imagine a place like this, destroyed, and us gathering tomorrow to sift through the rubble. There is a word for this kind of despair. I learned it recently, sadaje. It's not Hebrew or Greek in this case, it's Portuguese. The people in Portugal and Brazil, they pronounce it differently, but it means the same thing. And you'd probably translate it, if you had to use one word, melancholy or despair, but as often as the case, that would be lost in translation. It has at least three facets. There is this kind of remembrance of the good times, mixed with the despair of the present, and then it gets worse. And the kind of sense of longing and dread that thinks it may never be good again. This may be the new reality. That's sadaje. I, I know you've experienced despair. I don't know if you've experienced it to the point of vindictiveness. Maybe you have. I picture that scene in Forrest Gump when his girlfriend Jenny goes back to that childhood home, abandoned, where her father abused her, and she picks up a rock and throws it at the house, and then another one and another one, and Forrest says, sometimes there aren't enough rocks. That's Psalm 137. Or I think about Elie Wiesel, survivor of the Holocaust, to mark the 50th anniversary of the Holocaust, at this memorial, he prayed this prayer. Lord God of all mercies, show no mercy to those who are merciless to us. That's Psalm 137. Last week, I quoted a theologian who said, wherever you live, it's likely Egypt, as in bondage. Well, I think it works today. Wherever you live, it's likely Babylon. 
I mean, what is going on in your life? I know what's going on in the world. You've watched the news. And it's bigger than just one hurricane. It is a long, long list. About a month ago, early on Sunday morning, heading to church, leaving the neighborhood, on a street that, not like Ward Parkway, not like 63rd, but not a side street, a kind of street that meanders through the neighborhoods. And there was this young man walking down the street early in the morning. Now, I would guess he was 20, early 20s, something like that. It was hot summer morning, but he had on black and a stocking cap. And when I say he was walking down the street, I mean the very middle of the street. He wasn't crossing it. And there were only a few cars, but they were kind of going around him. And as I came up to go around him, he looked back at me and he said, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. That's the exile. That's sadaje. That's despair. Total loss of hope. It seems to me that the two most common approaches people take in our world, in our society, are a kind of pretending and surrendering. The pretending folks, I don't know if you know anybody like this, they don't watch the news. They don't read anything. They don't want to know about it. They won't even see a movie that has heavy themes in it. Give them Disney, but not reality. Just leave me alone. On the other end, I know people who have become mired in it, and that is the only world they know. If you run into the grocery store and you say, hey, how's it going? Oh, they got this long list of everything that's wrong with the world and in their world. And I get it. But it won't. It won't work. I mean, it won't work. I, I really think if we're going to live with Sadaje, and I'm kind of using that phrase the way they on commercials talk about how to live with chronic pain or diabetes. If you're going to live with Sadaje, it seems to me that you have to both be aware of what's going on, but not be mired in it. To be informed, but not infected by it. So I have two suggestions, two strategies. And the first one is to lean into the moment. Not into the despair to get mired in it. Lean into God in the moment of your despair. And that might even include vindictive prayer. This psalm says, you can do that. You can throw your Bible across the room. God has heard worse prayers than this. Think about the prayers coming up out of Ukraine for the last six months. It's okay to bring that to God. And the second strategy is a little bit more complicated. It, 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 it's a kind of joy despite what's going on. A kind of resistance movement in a way. I don't mean the way it is on cable news. You've seen this. 56 minutes. Catastrophe, 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 catastrophe. And then a three-minute clip to round out the hour about a dog and a mountain lion in Montana that had become good friends. And somehow that's supposed to wipe away all the catastrophe. 
It doesn't work. But there is a kind of joy you can find despite the suffering. Theologians describe it as living in Holy Saturday. You know when Holy Saturday is? It's the day after Good Friday and before Easter. We celebrate these two days, but these theologians say this is where we live on that Saturday. We have one foot in Good Friday because we know suffering and one foot in resurrection because we know hope. We don't live in Babylon. We don't live in Easter. We live in between. We eat in defiance of despair. So here's a story I told Friday in this very spot, presiding at a funeral for a 64-year-old woman who left behind a husband, three adult children, their spouses, and four grandchildren. And it is not the kind of story you normally tell at at a funeral, but this woman loved to host dinner parties. And the scripture we read in Isaiah was about God preparing a lovely feast in heaven of rich wine and food. It comes from an Episcopal priest and pastoral theologian by the name of Robert Farrer Capon. He wrote a bunch of quirky books. And in this one wonderful quirky book, he said, when you're hosting a dinner party, keep this in mind, when you're hosting a dinner party, here's what you do 15 minutes before they arrive. You sit down and have a glass of red wine and put on Vivaldi. Now, I suppose white wine and Mozart would do, but he said red wine and Vivaldi, which seems rather strange because, I mean, they're going to be here any minute. There's last-minute preparations. You know how it is. You scurry around. They're almost here. Let's get everything ordered. But he said, no, no, no. You have to sit and drink wine and listen to Vivaldi. Why? Because the party's going to happen. It's already set. It's going to happen. The guests that are invited, they're on their way. And the food that was prepared, it's ready. Why are you sitting and drinking and listening? Because the future is guaranteed. And then he says something about that in relation to God. We feast in the midst of despair because of God's promised good future. So maybe, I don't know, this is an 11 o'clock worship. Maybe every week at 1045, God sits down with a glass of wine and puts on Vivaldi. I mean, we only have grape juice here. But let us put on the music. Let us toast. And you tell me your despair. And I will tell you mine. And tell me what gives you joy and what hopes you have, and I will tell you mine. What is it that is absolutely breaking your heart? And what is it that gives you hope in God's good future?